Hi, everybody, and welcome to the February edition of the Third Fridays podcast. Uh, my name is Christian Cisan, and my guest today is my partner, Declan Corley. W- welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. You know, it's funny because uh, it's always after our run of shows with Christopher Major that he kind of ekes past you in the guest appearances. <laughs> so I, I do feel obligated. It's like, what's a good Declan topic? I need to get it back on so that uh, Mr. Major doesn't feel so that uh, he's he's destroying everybody. So I'm glad that you, you agreed to be on this month. Thank you for allowing me. <laughs> so to everybody that um, would like a refresher on this podcast in general, it's the 201 level accompaniment to our New York webinar series, right? So uh, on a Monday each month, there is the 101 level introduction to a particular topic in New York workers' compensation. And the Third Friday's podcast aims to be that 201 level um, accompaniment where we discuss how the 101 level uh, practice or, or lessons really go into our mindset, our training, our application of, of fact to law, right? No so, slides, more of a discussion. Oh, no slides. Yeah, no <laughs> slides. Uh, I think um, if I had did more slides, uh, more PowerPoint slides in my life, that would mean that uh, I'm, I should buy stock in, in Microsoft at this point. Uh, the amount of time that I use that program. But let's get right into it because the New York webinar series was about appeals, right? So um, what I want to do today with you, Declan, is to figure out you know, what what 2019 decisions were uh, the most important or, or the most eye-opening. Uh, so what I did was uh, try to earmark the ones where the appellate division reversed or modified the board. Right, because although it doesn't happen often, right, when the board makes a decision and the appellate division affirms it, it's very rare that we learn something new. Right, right? that's how we've been practicing, probably. Right, like the board was correct, so th- there's no point in rehashing what that really means. Right, we could, but then we'd be here forever. <laughs> right, be a three-hour, four, four-day pa- podcast, maybe. Right, which I wouldn't be that against, but <laughs> I would. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, 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 every guest would be. So then I wouldn't have any guests. I'd be on solo. But maybe, yeah, let's just, that's another topic for another day. But I want to start with Monday versus Verizon New York Incorporated. It's a third department decision, very recent, December 5th of last year. Um, and talk about what the, the appellate division did in relation to the board's decision. So if you give me a little background time here, we have an employer paying wage replacement after a compensable work accident in the amount of uh, approximately $28,000. So it's, it's not it's not like one week's worth of pay, right? It's, it's a substantial amount that they continued wages, which is important because wages are going to be generally, 99% of the time, higher than a compensation rate in workers' comp, right? So when an employer does that, it's important to request reimbursement uh, from the workers' compensation carrier if they feel that it's necessary. And in this case, the claimant was found to have a 40% schedule loss of use, but the decision awarding that uh, finding did not address employer reimbursement, right? So the carrier and employer appealed, and the board panel found that there was no timely request for the reimbursement. So can you go into a little bit just background uh, law, Declan, as to what that means. What is a timely request for employer reimbursement of wages? Well, typically speaking, the, the request for reimbursement should have been submitted prior to an award being made. So the time they went to the hearing and the judge said, I find you have a 40% schedule loss of use, presumably the board 
file should have contained the, the reimbursement request from the employer. Right. And uh, I think that the facts of this case uh, are, are a little bit vague on whether or not the request was in. I, it's very possible from just reading the opinion that the request was in, but it's then on counsel to make right. that uh, close that loop essentially, right? Like we're, we're yeah, noting the reimbursement. Request. You could be talking about years going by, right. no one really thinking about it. You're going for a schedule loss of use. And again, this shouldn't sneak past anybody, but the judge is certainly not looking for it pro- more than likely. So if, uh, and claim his counsel, certainly not going to ask for it. Uh, so if claim, if Kara's counsel is not asking for that on the record, reimburse my employer, it, it could sneak past, even Absolutely. if the request is in the board file. Absolutely. And it's some some variation of that happened here where the board says you didn't make the timely request. And what the third department did was they really focused on the fact that it would be an unjust enrichment to the claimant. And they basically said that the board should have exercised its continuing jurisdiction under Section 123 to prevent a windfall to the claimant. And it's a little bit interesting because if we apply the statute correctly, you could make the argument that the board is correct, right? right. If there's no timely request, then despite the fact that there's $28,000 at issue, it doesn't mean that you get uh, the relief you're seeking based on the amount that's at issue. No timely request. The judge rules on at a hearing. Presumably no exception. Note it because... If you didn't request it, then you don't even know to note an exception. So I think there's a few procedural steps that the board actually gave the carrier some grace on. Um, but basically, they're looking at it as this is a major windfall for a claimant, getting $28,000, and it's disproportionate to what the intentions of the law were. Right. So <clears throat> having having $28,000 paid by the employer for the time that's allocated towards the scheduled loss of use and then getting it from the carrier again is that double recovery that the third department said – no, we're not going to let you do that. And I think the importance of that is not so much for those scenarios in general, but a th- the third department is telling the board to exercise its discretion, right? Where in most other cases, a th- the third department will tell tell the parties that the board properly exercised its discretion. Right. So if Section <clears throat> 123 always allows the board to reopen claims for really any any issue— and the third department is going down to the board and saying, no, 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 you have to use your discretion here. What does that mean for clients other than we don't know what it means? <laughs> <laughs> well, the good thing is if there's really an extreme injustice here, which I think this $28,000, significant amount of money, chances are this is a couple hundred dollars. Maybe the, well, first of all, it might not even be taken up to the appellate division. Right. And if it is, do they change their minds? Do they, do they go differently? Um, I do think that the fact that it's $28,000 more than likely that's a significant portion of whatever schedule loss of use would be. Even if it's a high wage earner, again, 40% is a high schedule. I don't want to speculate how much money it is, but even if the schedule loss of use is $100,000, you're talking about potentially 20% more than they should have gotten. Right, right. It's certainly an eye-opening figure. Uh, And I think, or at least what I would plan to do with this decision, is to apply it to cases where the board is, improperly using its discretion, right? Not to say that you can use this in every scenario where there's a discretionary ruling, but to say that if the number at issue is of tantamount importance, you know, $28,000 compared to the overall schedule, using this case to tell the board that the appellate division has knocked down this door before, right? 
and say, use it in times of clear need, right? So we all face these decisions sometimes where we, we, we see an unjust result uh, and we're looking for that common sense argument. I think this could be it here where it's if there is something so disproportionate to what the case should be from a common sense perspective, I mean, we are practicing uh, administrative law, right? We like to use common sense. Right. Always Hopefully. Uh, that maybe we can use this case to clear the picture a little bit, right? Like use this case to tell the board, use your discretion correctly instead of coming to an unjust result. Right. Okay. So the next case uh, I wanted to look at uh, was a case, uh, Poulard versus Southside Hospital. Now that's also a 2019 case. And in this case, the claimant was found to have no further causally related disability, right? Typically, a jump for joy on our side, right? A finding that the claimant is no longer disabled relative to our accident. But because of that, the law judge found labor market attachment to be moot. Now, on the surface, that makes sense. Why would you need to be forced to look for work to prove that you're entitled to benefits if the medical doesn't entitle you to benefits? Right. Right? Whereas if you had a 50% disability, you have to prove your entitlement to that benefit by looking for work within a 50% disability restriction. Right? We're on the same page. Good so far. The claimant then went and pursued surgery, right? This is uh, a common occurrence where uh, I have my benefits cut off uh, because my doctor didn't testify credibly or uh, whatever unrelated weight loss argument may exist, and they go and get a surgery, and we know that the RFA1 is coming in very soon as the operative report is available, sometimes even before, <laughs> to say, now I'm entitled to total disability. Especially if there's no benefits being paid. Of course, right? Uh, and at this point, it goes before the, the judge, and the judge says, wait, you were found to have a less than total disability, i.e. no disability. Therefore, you should have had to look for work with full duty, full duty uh, applications or, or, or full, full work duties to prove that you're entitled to total disability after the surgery, right? Basically, to reattach the labor market. Right. Uh, <laughs> right, right. That, and that is a, a famous uh, third department case, uh, Matter of Bocce versus Staten Island University Hospital that, you know, we're all very, very aware of in order to prevent the reinstating of, of benefits after a surgery when there's an attachment issue prior to that. So the claimant appeals saying uh, that I didn't have to demonstrate a need. And the, the third department, or the board, agrees with the carrier. The claimant goes to the third department. The third department actually reverses the board and agrees with the claimant, saying the law judge found attachment to be moot. So the claimant should not have to prove attachment. And in theory, taken away from this case, that makes sense, right? If attachment's moot, then the claimant shouldn't have to look for work, right? But compare this claimant who was found to have no disability with a claimant who had a 50% disability. <clears throat> the 50% disability claimant would have to look for work and could theoretically reach a finding on attachment before surgery is pursued. And if the claimant is not found attached, 
then he can't get post-surgery awards. Is that fair? Yeah. The no disability <clears throat> claimant is told not to look for work because he doesn't, he's not entitled to a wage replacement. And because he doesn't look for work, he's in a better position post-surgery? Yeah, I have a major, I take major issue with this decision. <laughs> it's, it doesn't make, does not make sense. Uh, if a claimant's found to have no further cause-related disability, is out of work for whatever reason, does not reattach to the labor market, goes and has surgery, and then claims he's out of work because of the surgery, that's not true. You were out of work because you hadn't returned to work ever, even though you were found to not be disabled. Right. So the decision to me just does not sit right. And like you said, the person that had no disability is better off than the person that has a 50% or even a 1% disability. Right. It's, it, it's, it's really difficult to understand <clears throat> when, you, when you look at it from a lens of a claimant, of a theoretical partial disability claimant. Uh, so my, my thinking is, and, and tell me if you agree, Declan, is we get that no FCRD finding and the law judge says attachment is moot. Do I have to appeal that? And I, I think I have to appeal that and say, no, 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 labor market attachment is ripe because he has a less than total disability. And now he has to look for work with a full duty pallet. I think I, that's, that's my thinking based on this decision. What do you think about that? I think it's going to be – the situation here I think is very rare. I don't know how common it is that someone's found out no further cause-related disability. And then gets a surgery. And then has a surgery, and in the meantime, they didn't go back to work. I think it's more often than not, no further cause-related disability. Okay, I am better. I give up. I'm going back to work. Go back to work for a few months. Maybe the problems persist, and then the surgery request comes in. And at that time, they clearly have reattached because they've gone back to work. I think, again, I'm talking about the norm. I guess we work every day in the non-normal situation. So um, I just think it's such a bizarre scenario. But I do really do take issue with the ruling. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're definitely correct. I think that uh, if we're going to talk about practical application, right, a, a no FCRD finding that sticks, right? So the answer would be I wouldn't be appealing every single no FCRD finding. <laughs> well, well, right. No, you wouldn't, be, you wouldn't be appealing the no FCRD finding. Right. The, the right? Finding You'd be finding that the, the attachment's, moved. attachments moved because that's that clearly based on this decision, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's allowing the no disability claimant to benefit over someone who's actually more disabled than them. And I think that's where we want to go in that right case. So if, if that's the case, we should move up to, to, uh, the f- to appeal the finding of the attachments moot because the case law is now going to tell you that you're not going to be appealing the awards anymore because this case will throw it in your face that he didn't <laughs> have to look for work, right? Correct. So in order to actually close the loop, you have to appeal the fact that attachment was moot so that you have that opportunity to say no awards after surgery. Like you said, very, very rare case, but we can, we can theoretically think of one where a claimant is found to have no FCRD, right? As crazy as that sounds, like the board agrees with us, <laughs> right? We can think of that possibility. And I'm going to guess the claimant's doctor just didn't show up for the deposition. Oh, right. Or maybe, <laughs> right. Moved out of town, uh, got his license suspended or something. <laughs> right. Uh, we go to that point, and then if we're faced with a surgery, uh, how do we react to that? It's almost you have to look back in time and and close the loop before it even starts. Yeah. So uh, it's definitely a problematic decision. But So I want everybody to be clear that even though it's a rare situation where you have a no FCRD uh, claimant that goes and gets surgery thereafter, it's possible, right? If they want the benefit because they don't want to go back to work, then – 
they're going to do this type of thing where they pursue a surgery that may not even be causally related or uh, really medically necessary for him, him or her. And to do that, you need to prepare from the outset. Attachment should not be moot based on this decision. What's the phrase? Defend from day one? Oh, first counter of the day, and it wasn't said by me. That's got to be a record, a new new involvement. Uh, so let's go with that. It makes me very happy. Uh, but the next few cases are similar, Declan, and I want uh, to talk about them in conjunction. Um, and they have to do with apportionment. Uh, so generally, can we uh, maybe have you give a little background on apportionment of a workers' compensation classification award to a pre-existing non-work claim. So I just want to set the difference because with a scheduled loss of use case, even if you have if you have a prior injury to that or pre-existing condition to that body part, you can always apportion it with scheduled loss of use body parts. The law is very different for loss of wagering capacity. So when you think of your typical back, neck injury claims, the person could have had 16 prior back surgeries. You now have a work injury for a back injury. They're working full duty, full time, and they injure their back. You can't apportion it. I, I guess we're getting, I'm getting into the case really <laughs> intending to. Right. It's, 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 uh, it's the standard or really the, the difficulty in getting to that is monumentally challenging. Right. Right. Um, so let's start with Richie. It's Richie versus Maria Regina Residence. Uh, and the claimant had a heart condition that was established but had a pre-existing – I mean generally uh, work is not going to give you a heart condition. There are going to be some pre-existing factors. It's just one of those conditions, right? So uh, there was clear evidence of a pre-existing condition and the third department was looking at whether or not the permanent disability could be apportioned to – the pre-existing heart condition, right? So the carrier is saying, well, well, why should I pay for as if the work accident caused the heart condition? Which is a correct question to ask. It's just how we approach it to get the relief that we want that has to really, really be identified with a microscope, a magnifying glass. It's so, so difficult because the court uh, said that the carrier had failed to prove that the claimant's pre-existing conditions hindered or were likely to hinder her employability. The record also did not reflect that the claimant was subject to any work restrictions or that her pre-existing conditions hinder her job performance. So if I have to prove that the pre-existing condition affects loss of wage earning capacity, it's almost a, um, a look or, or an assessment into the claimant's vocational factors at the time of the pre-existing condition. Right. So we talk about loss of wagering capacity as, as a three-pronged approach, right? Your medical impairment, your functional ability or loss, and your vocational factors. But apportioning those things back to a pre-existing condition now requires you to assess functional ability and vocational factors for a non-work case, right? So Not to so say that It sounds like this is hard to do. <laughs> it's, it's very hard to do. Not to say that this is new. This is This is kind of like a a re-exploration of the difficulty of doing so, but it's a good teaching moment where we say, yes, you have a pre-existing condition, but that doesn't get you the apportionment, right? This Even takes if us it's back legitimate. 
it takes us back to law school, the whole eggshell plaintiff doctrine where you basically take your plaintiff as you find them. So unfortunately, like the example I was giving, 16 prior back surgeries, hopefully there's no one out there with that. But if you have multiple back surgeries, if you are working your regular job, full duty with no work restrictions, basically you're not going to be able to apportion if you have a, now have a, a new, new claim for a back injury. Yeah. Unless you can show, again, that they had work restrictions, uh, that they were l- working a lesser job potentially. But again, if they're working a full-duty job, even if they were previously, uh, I'll use some extreme examples, they were previously uh, a mason, but now they're working as a painter. Well, they're working full-duty as a painter possibly. Right. I, and also think about it too, if we want to take it uh, on a granular level, right? If, if I have the 16 back surgeries and I can prove that I worked full duty right. immediately after all of them, then it shouldn't be apportioned to that, right? Because if, 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 if that was so severe, then I would have been out of work. I would have had post-surgery work restrictions at least that would have allowed us to say, well, vocational factors and the functional loss were clearly affected with the, by the pre-existing condition or the pre-existing surgery. And therefore, currently we have to apportion it back. So it's, it's kind of assessment into that thing. The, the, the Whitney versus uh, Prejus Corp case uh, cements that idea because the claimant was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis after the accident had occurred, right? And so the third department found that there was a pre-existing condition and it's almost assessment too of within that body of work when I say work, the work accident claim, really, if the claim is also established for the lower back, the right hip, the head, traumatic brain injury, post-concussion syndrome, cognitive impairment, and hydrocephalus, and then MS, multiple sclerosis, is that you know tack on. I don't want to say tack, I don't want to diminish it, but I want to say it's it's an additional condition added to apportion back to that just one condition is already difficult. Right, because you have existing, legitimate orthopedic and psychological right. injuries, and that's where the moment clicks where we have to say, maybe she does have pre-existing multiple scler- sclerosis. It's hard to say that one work accident caused such a debilitating condition. There had to have been some pre-existing issue, but how do we get back to the point where we're saying at Elwec time? that your permanent disability is apportioned to just one of the nine conditions you have. What would you have done if you were the carrier in this scenario when we're going there? Well, there's so much unknown because we have such little fact patterns, but MS is, it's a neurological condition. I'm going to imagine that there's overlap in some of the symptomology with what she's having with, uh, again, I think you said post-concussion syndrome. Right. There's some neurological elements to that. Traumatic so. brain injury and then some cognitive impairment. So... If you can show that anything that's uh, not, I think the argument really has to be a non-cause relationship argument rather than an apportionment argument. Oh yeah, that's a great. That's actually a great point. Um, if you if you transition that away from apportionment, because you have to look at it with a lens of if I have nine conditions, I'm trying to apportion all of her permanent disability back to one of them being pre-existing. The battle. <laughs> to a portion to a non-work injury has gotten like right. the, the, the hill has been higher has been st- steepened uh we already are uh trying to climb mount everest <laughs> and now we're doing it without any tools we're now <laughs> going there without any uh sherpa <laughs> to help us because this is at the point where 
you have to start re-triggering your analysis. And the analysis is, well, what's her wage cause? What's her wage loss cause, right? Is it the multiple sclerosis? Because if it is, then we have to compare it back to the pre-existing MS and say, did that cause some work loss? And say, if, if that didn't, then we use that as an argument for unrelated wage loss at trial, as opposed to spending all our time and money and investment on apportionment, because we should know that our hill to climb is just a lot steeper. So I think the main takeaways with these two cases are, and it's kind of what we already knew, that if someone has prior injuries in a loss of wage earning capacity case that are, are pre-existing conditions, you definitely want to know information from your employer uh, if that person was working under any type of modified job uh, restrictions or if they had a light duty job they were working or if they knew that they uh, had previously had a different job and now they're working at a lower capacity job, basically showing that there was some impingement on their career or job based on that pre-existing condition. Right, right. I think the... Uh... Uh, you know, the investigation to a claimant's personnel file, uh, FMLA leaves, short-term disability, long-term disability, you know, we typically are, are focused on those things in denying a claim, right? These afterthought uh, filings or solely unrelated wage loss claims from the outset. Maybe there's a termination involved. But to transition a loss of wagering capacity apportionment argument to this is, I think, a far better use of resources, right? We can figure out, or we sh at least we should be able to figure it out. And if we're going to go to trial and uh, pound a fist on a desk by basically saying that there, this issue is pre-existing, it's, it's really an assessment of how bad the pre-existing condition is, right? As an employer or a carrier, like, can we figure out how that affected the claimants prior to our injury? Right. Yeah. And, and connect that to now, because if it did, and the same diagnoses still apl are applied to uh, the claimant's current state, then we're asking the question, instead of apportioning it back, we're almost using it to help us. We're saying, they worked with this same diagnosis. So what is the reason that they're not working now? And using that as an unrelated wage loss argument. I think that's <coughs> a great point. Okay, so we've gone over uh, three topics uh, that have like some substantive application, right? One is... Uh, the use of discretion and reopening claims via Section 123. Uh, the second had to do uh, with re employer reimbursement, right? The second had to do with labor market attachment, voluntary withdrawal, change in condition, that jazz. Hit them all. <laughs> right. The third had to do with apportionment and, and uh, looking back at prior non-work claims that would be subject to or that – uh, affect a claim that's subject to classification via loss of wagering capacity. And I want to end with, uh, you know, a case that is just solely about appeal briefs. <laughs> if we know that we have to file an appeal brief to really state our position and, and make our mark as, as attorneys here, uh, what do we know prior to this case that I'm going to talk about, about the page limits required by the board in appeal briefs, Declan? What, do, what, what does the board say we have to do? I'm trying to think back when they actually implemented this and how we reacted as attorneys in our office, but I guess it's about two to three years ago where the board implemented a rule where they said, we are not going to review appeals that are longer than eight pages in length. Right. And I remember thinking to myself, this is crazy. Like, <laughs> that's my job is to write. I mean, we shouldn't be, I don't think you should be writing eight page briefs on a regular basis, but 
there certainly are cases that warrant it. And now you're basically taking my pen away and saying you can't make your arguments. Right. I mean, look at the appeals that we just talked about today, right? Uh, the the Poulard uh, third department case. You're going to tell me I have to, I have to consider uh, further causally related disability, degree of disability, related wage loss, labor market attachment, voluntary withdrawal, changing condition, and entitlement to wage loss uh, benefits after a surgery. I could say that brief should take more than eight pages, or maybe maybe to put it better, if it took nine pages, I would have been I wouldn't have batted an eye at it, right? When there's enough issues in a case that require that then the person should be allowed to draft a nine-plus-page brief. Right. And so the, board, the board's uh, idea, uh, which I can understand, right, there's a lot of appeals to restrict that flow, is to say you're, rec- you're at eight pages and that's it. And if you really want to go to page nine and, and, and later, you have to give me an affidavit explaining why, right? So With no explanation as to what the why has to be other than— Right. You have to tell us why. Right. And we'll decide if it's sufficient. And if it's not sufficient, well, then guess what the punishment is? We're not even reviewing your appeal. Right. And this happened where a 10-page brief was explaining that the complexity of precedent and other case law and statutes governing the issue was found by the board to be a cursory referral to the issues and therefore insufficient needlessly lengthy and providing lengthy quotations from prior board decisions and they didn't hear the appeal right it's almost as if you know maybe maybe the better thing to do was if you give us pages 9 and 10 and 11 then we're going to stop at page 8 <laughs> right right that should have that that would probably be the most fair thing to not do not as punitive right i mean well, the way it was drafted it basically was you're really taking a risk here that if you go beyond that eighth page so if you have eight pages in one line it wasn't like we're not going to review that ninth page one line. It's we're not going to review the first eight pages or even entertain your arguments. Right. It was a way to get out of deciding appeals, essentially. Or doing work. Well, that's the same thing, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, the employer went to the third department for this and got a favorable decision, right? The court noted here that the board didn't define the standard that would require an explanation for a lengthy brief to be adequate. They can say like, okay, this is what defines uh, as sufficient to be more than eight pages. Like these are the these are the issues that have to come up in your case, or these this is the explanation you need to give. And then they also went even further to say the regulation does not author, authorize the board to dismiss the appeal if they felt that it was not adequately explained. So kind of what you were referring to uh, just before I read that was the punishment or the penalty is not reviewing the appeal at all as opposed to saying, okay, I gave you eight pages. You went to nine. I'm going to read eight. That would probably be fair. Right. They just just chose not to review. And what is the criteria for allowing me to submit this lengthier brief? So if my argument is – I had six witnesses. I couldn't – and four arguments that I want to – or four specific issues I want to appeal – that's the reason why I couldn't get it in eight pages is the response back. Well, if you had seven witnesses and seven arguments, that would have been a reason. But this, this, your reason's not sufficient. So right. just it was too discretionary with no one knowing the rules that they were playing. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, I just kind of like this. It's almost dicta, but 
you know, just uh, nice for, for an employer's attorney to read and saying that the board acted arbitrarily in dismissing the application for, for board review and it was unreasonable for the board to reject an oversized brief because it would undermine the role of counsel. Like I said, right? you're taking away my pen and saying you can't make arguments <laughs> just because it's an eighth, eighth, on the ninth page. And I think, I think that's, that's a really great place to kind of link everything together because if, I'm, if I wanted to, to hold this podcast and talk to you, Declan Gorley, my partner, and say, let's, let's educate, let's, let's really uh, show our client base about uh, you know, what we do here, which is interpreting the law and applying it to a set of facts on a day-to-day basis. And these are the most important things we need to look at from 2019 and tell you how we think it affects your practice. In a way, we are explaining that there are complex issues to be discussed. And it's a nice little ribbon to say, don't take away my ability to discuss those issues, (laughs) right? Yeah. So uh, for all of those people out there that want to have their day in court, right? Which is the, you know, the, the term we learn very, very early on in our legal career. Like the third department's letting you do that, right? Have your day in court by making sure that you are not confined to an arbitrary and capricious requirement of eight pages, right? And I think that uh, it, it's a step in the right direction. We, there, we go from case number one, where, where the third department's saying, exercise your discretion here. This is really important and it's unjust to this final case we're talking about, Matter of Daniels versus City of Rochester, where don't take away the council's right to zealously advocate on behalf of the employer. I think it's a nice, nice little message to send to say that, you know, I think the board in trying to streamline things has gone a little bit too far and let's, let's kick it back. Let's, let's, let's take baby steps. And uh, let's figure out a better way to process claims. Any final thoughts, Declan? I just thought along the whole appeal line that it was interesting that in the last year and a half, two years, this pretty major issue was the board, the way they were reacting to RB89s and kicking out all the RB89s if you didn't check the right box, put the right thing in the right box. Um, And I'm sure you've talked about this on your podcast. And I know it's been talked about on the webinars and it's been talked about all over and hearing points all over the place. Um, But unfortunately, every single... Every single one of those decisions where the council argued or the, it was mainly – it was both carriers and claimants were taking issue with this because they didn't check off a right box on an RB89, which is the cover page for an appeal. The board was not entertaining their appeal saying that they didn't meet their specific regulations. The appellate division has upheld that and said you, that the board can define their, their rules and regulations, and if you don't meet their criteria, they're not going to entertain it. This is the one pushback that, we, that council actually won on, the board – is being told you, know, you can't you can't employ this broad rule of eight pages and no we're not going to review the ninth page without setting forth some criteria right i i i almost think it, they're 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 joined at the hip right because it, the reason why that those rb89 uh issues were upheld was because the board well, i i don't agree with it but the third department agreed that the board defined it in some way Right. Right. So it provided advance notice and gave uh, each party predictability. So the case goes. I mean, the fact that uh, both claimants and carriers employers are appealing on this very issue means that they didn't. Right. That they didn't define it. And I will champion that cause forever. I think that's it. It's it's an absolute absurdity 
to take someone's day in court away because a box wasn't checked. Not only that it wasn't checked, but it wasn't checked to their liking, right? Because it just wasn't in this specific section, but it was everywhere else on the form and everywhere else in the brief. So I'm not, I'm not agreeing with the third department's upholding of that issue, but they're saying that the board clearly defined it, and in the eight-page requirement, they didn't. Right. Right. So uh, it, it does it does make sense if you want to agree that the premise is is possible, but I, you can't you can't throw me throw me that little little hook and, and and let me get off the soapbox because that's that still sticks in my craw. It's ridiculous. But uh, good final thought, Declan. You don't do you have anything else? No. Okay. No. Okay. Well, I hope that this discussion has been a little bit helpful. Uh, in comparison to the 101 level webinars we had today in February. So for my partner, Declan Gorley, my name is Christian Cisan, reminding you to defend from day one.